Do you have what it takes to command your forces to victory against the Warsaw Pact? Well, let's find out with M1 Tank Platoon this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 76 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, back again, as usual, to talk to you about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So it's Friday. Uh, I took a half day off work so I could, uh, you know, get some things in order. I'm actually taking off to the West Coast uh, on Sunday for... Almost three weeks um, for work stuff. I'm going on a training and then I'm going to a conference and and, and this and that. So I really did want to get a show out, uh, you know, among packing and getting medication in order and, you know, making sure I've got everything I need, getting all the software I need installed on, on my work machine and all that stuff. You know, just a little, uh, what's the word? Uh, anyways, little preparatory uh, tasks that are required when uh, when you're leaving home for a reasonable amount of time. Uh, so yeah, I really want to get a show out because uh, I'm going to try and do some stuff while I'm out there because I should, you know, I'm going to be sort of on my own in uh, in a hotel room <laughs> kind of every night. So, um, you know, I, I might get some stuff done. I might uh, do some weird things or put some stuff on the feed. Maybe not. Maybe whatever. We'll, we'll figure it all out. But, um, you know, for the time being, I just wanted to get a show up before I went because uh, it's time to put out a new show and I didn't want to delay so uh all that aside big exciting <laughs> time on the west coast i'm gonna see uh I, I actually have some arrangements with some folk uh, i'm gonna be down in seattle i'm gonna see some folk down there apparently and uh, i'm gonna go visit my buddy rick moyer you hear him often in the uh in the bumpers and you know the the wonderfully talented man that did all the uh all the audio stuff for for the show that you guys hear all the time. Uh, I'm going to go and meet him and his wife and and family and uh you know, we're going to have a really great time down in the Pacific Northwest. I just chatted with uh, with Rick and Amy and uh you know, we're starting to plan some some fun for the Sunday that I'm down there. So anyways, <laughs> enough of that. Let's get on with things. So um not a ton of emails this week. I guess it's summer, but we did get one voicemail from Greg. So take it away, Greg. Hi, Joe. My name's Greg. Uh, I just recently found your podcast about a month ago. I was doing a search online for any podcast that might be dedicated to old uh, PC gaming and found yours. And uh, so I've been going through the backlog uh, and really have been loving the podcast so far. Uh, I grew up in 76, but I, um, sorry, I was born in 76 and I got my first uh, uh, IBM PC clone in 1988. So I was doing a lot of PC gaming in the late 80s and all through the 90s. And uh, your podcast really brings back a lot of great and wonderful memories about playing these classic games. There's so many fond memories and just so much uh, time spent digging into these uh, wonderful masterpieces. And uh, as a fellow podcaster myself, I also do the Super NES podcast. I know how hard it is to, to, to do a podcast week in, week out, and how much work and effort it could be. And my hat's off to you. 
uh, your love enthusiasm for these games like really shows, and I really appreciate uh, all the all the effort and, and uh, all the effort and uh, research and everything to, that you put like, into the podcast. So uh, keep up the great work. Uh, I, I definitely I definitely will help spread the word about your podcast, and they, uh, I, um, and looking forward to the regular podcast that you're doing on 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 a, on a like on a semi semi weekly basis, and they, um, um, and they just a. Just really awesome to find a podcast dedicated to all these like great classic games. Uh, thanks again for all the hard work and take care. Thank you very much, Greg. Uh, yeah, semi weekly. Uh, I try. I try. <laughs> I don't always make it. I'm more. I think I'm on a more of a three week schedule these days because I'm so busy with uh, with other stuff. But uh, but yeah, you know. And uh, guys, go check out the Super NES podcast. Uh, you know, I had. Uh, I definitely had a Super NES. I think. I was trying to think, well, the first time I, I, I kind of listened to these voicemails a bit beforehand, just, you know, because I get excited when I get email and voicemail from you guys, so I can't help but, uh, but listen to them right off the bat. And, uh, you know, I, it, it got me to thinking about, I I wasn't a huge console gamer, which is probably why I do this show, but, um, you know, I always had a console, and I was trying to think, because I, I we, had a, we had an Atari 2600 uh, that, you know, if you go listen back to kind of the first uh, hangout... I talked about a little bit and I was very young. I didn't, I don't have like very specific memories of that one. And then we had an NES. I was kind of more in the Nintendo track for the first little while. I had an NES and I played a lot of NES and I really loved my NES. And then we got super Nintendo and that was kind of like sort of the big, I had that SNES for a long time. I actually skipped the, uh, you know, sort of, uh, N64 PS one, uh, you know, Xbox, original Xbox generation. And then I jumped to PS2 and I'm trying to think if the SNES or the PS2 was kind of like my height of console gaming, it may have been the PS2, but my God, I had, you know, Mario Kart, Mario Paint. Uh, I was trying to think of tons of games. I remember playing F-Zero. I really love Pilot Wings. Like, oh, just so many good memories on, on that super nintendo so uh thanks again for the voicemail and uh you know if you guys have anything to say as always feel free to fire off uh actually greg used the uh, the widget on umbcast.com there's a cool little voice widget there where if you just slide it out of the side of the web page you click record if you have a microphone it works right away aside from that as always you know uh record something on your phone or whatever but uh i love your emails and uh that's that let's get to uh the main topic here you're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for So this week, we are rolling in with the big metal. We're talking M1 Tank Platoon. So M1 Tank Platoon is a series of two games developed and published by our friends at Microprose. Uh, the first of these games, aptly named M1 Tank Platoon, uh, released in the year 1989. So I realized that... Uh, you know, the last bunch of shows have been sort of hanging around the late 90s, so I figured it was time for a trip back to the late 80s. Well, let's talk genre, like we do. Uh, being that this is a microprose game, you can be certain that we are in the realm of simulations. Uh, to be specific, this is a tank study simulator. That is, it simulates in some depth the behavior and operation of a single tank, a single type of tank. 
Uh, since you as the player only directly control a single type of tank throughout the game, this is a great example of a study simulator. Uh, the opposite of this would be a survey simulator, which would model like, you know, either a variety of tanks, a variety of vehicles of either different types or uh, the same type. So a variety of tanks, a variety of planes, or a variety of tanks and planes. So a tank simulator acts much as you think it would. Uh, as the player, you can man the various crew positions in the tank, performing duties such as commander, driver, gunner, and uh, loader should uh, that type of tank have that position. As in other simulations we've looked at thus far, uh, tank simulators take you through the game in a through a series of missions with a variety of, of uh, objectives. Uh, these tend to be a little bit more limited uh, then in other simulations, usually involving either the defense of a given point or the reaching and holding of uh, enemy points. Another thing is possibly breaking through an enemy line and exiting the map, things like that. But, uh, you know, unlike flight sims where you could have like patrol and this and that and blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, tanks are a little bit more limited in their, not their uses, they're useful, but you only use them in certain ways. And that's not all, though. So we got the simulation aspect kind of uh, under control. But M1 Tank Platoon isn't just a run-and-gun action game. It's not just a place where you jump in the tank, you drive around, you shoot stuff. There's also an element of real-time tactics mixed in with the simulation game here. So a real-time tactics game, these are things we've talked about as well. Uh, these types of games focus on the control of uh, a relatively small group of military units in what is potentially a complex and uh, constantly changing battlefield. Well, whereas, whereas real-time strategy games like Warcraft, Command & Conquer, Dune, things like that, where they focus on things like production and resource gathering and defense in addition to combat, real-time tactics games distill things down, removing the added complexity of base and resource management, and generally also drop the production aspects of things, focusing only on the disposition and the actions of the units you are provided under your command. Now, much like their bigger scoped cousins, real-time tactics games tend to be played from a bird's-eye view of the battlefield, allowing you, as the group commander, to direct your troops all around. So how do these two genres mix together? Well, surprisingly or not surprisingly, pretty well. But let's find out the details. All right, time to talk story. So M1 Tank Platoon is a contemporary tank simulation, or at least it's contemporary as of 1989. You are the commander of a U.S. Army tank platoon consisting of four M1 Abrams main battle tanks. Now, in 1989, the M1 Abrams was a cutting-edge battle tank that was not very widely used in combat as of yet. It hadn't really been combat tested. We're going to get on to more details of, of the situation in the tank in a bit, but from a story perspective, what this basically means is that you are under direct command of 16 soldiers and their associated tanks. As we progress through the training scenarios and onto the campaign, you and your platoon will engage in a campaign against the nations of the Warsaw Pact. Now, I vaguely knew what the Warsaw Pact was via, you know, kind of 80s action films. But, uh, you know, we're here to learn, so let's learn. The Warsaw Pact was, in theory at least, a collective defense treaty among the eight communist states of Central Europe. Those states were Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, Poland, Romania, the Soviet Union, and for a short time, Albania. Now, the pact was formed in the year 1955. 
Now, this military alliance was meant to ensure peace in Europe and the safe expansion and expression of communist ideals. However, like with many things involving communism, there were a few issues. Some say that the real impetus behind the Warsaw Pact was really the desire of the Soviet Union to dominate Central Europe both militarily and culturally. Now, despite the fact that the pact was a multinational protection treaty, most of the control of Warsaw Pact forces rested with the supreme commander who was always Soviet. Now, on the other side of the coin, you, as the player, are a member of NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Currently, NATO consists of 28 states, many of which are actually former Warsaw Pact nations. However, in the time frame of the game, that is not the case. Formed in 1949, NATO was also a collective defense organization, which uh, really only came into its own in the Korean War. Uh, before that, it was more just kind of a political arrangement. But in the Korean War, uh, two U.S. Supreme Commanders uh, created a NATO military structure and uh, those commanders reported directly into uh, an appointed director general. So through the events of the Cold War, NATO and the Warsaw Pact nations would form sort of a rivalry that spanned, you know, the length of the Cold War into the early 90s. This is where we find ourselves at the beginning of the game. Okay, so, you know, there, there, there's some background information there. Not a ton of actual narrative story, but, uh, you know, definitely a lot of framing to, uh, to give us a place to be. So let's talk gameplay. So given that you've just been put in command of a platoon of M1 Abrams tanks, a good place to start out is probably on the static gunnery range. Here, you and your platoon can practice at your leisure with stationary targets that don't fight back. So first things first. We need to know one or two things about your primary tool, the M1 Abrams main battle tank. Now, the purpose of a main battle tank is to transport its mounted weaponry into battle. The tank is heavily armored as it's expected to lead attacks straight into enemy lines. Main battle tanks are not subtle weapons. They are large, they are loud, and they mount some big guns. So the main thing we really care about off the bat are the weapon systems. Now the Abrams mounts a 120 millimeter main gun. It fires either armor piercing Sabo rounds or high explosive heat rounds. We can get into details of how these things work, but suffice it to say that the armor piercing rounds use kinetic energy to penetrate layers of armor, while the high explosive rounds use a chemical reaction to cause their damage. The Sabo rounds lose effectiveness at longer ranges, whereas the heat ammo has a constant effect. However, since it's lighter than the Sabo, it is much less accurate. So Sabo is great against uh, armored targets, but it's frankly completely ineffective versus uh, infantry and other soft targets like that. The tank carries 20 rounds of each type of ammo in its ammunition compartment for a total complement of 40 rounds. Now, on top of its big gun, there's also a few other weapons that the tank mounts. Uh, there's a 7.62 millimeter coaxial machine gun uh, mounted on the turret beside the main gun. So if you look at the, the turret of the tank, you'll see the long kind of barrel of the main gun. Next to it, there's a much shorter squatter barrel. That is the 7.62 millimeter coax. This fires 7.62 millimeter uh, rounds similar to those fired by uh, standard infantry assault rifles like the M16. You know, if you've ever seen Full Metal Jacket, 
762 millimeter full metal jacket. Those guys. Uh, this is kind of the primary anti-infantry weapon on the tank. Both of these weapons are controlled by the gunner. So the main cannon, main gun, and the 7.62 coax are controlled by the gunner. Now on top of the turret, a 50 caliber machine gun is available for use by the tank commander. It's more powerful than the 7.62 with uh, enough hitting power to penetrate lightly armored vehicles. However, it's uh, somewhat less accurate. Finally, a spare 7.62 millimeter machine gun is located near the loader's hatch. Uh, this is sort of an oh crap last resort weapon since the loader should frankly really be focusing on his job of loading the main gun. Uh, I don't believe this gun's even modeled in the game, but you know, for complete for completeness, it's there. So now that we know what toys we get to play with, let's get into things and find out a bit more about how to fight this tank. So say we enter the first training mission on the gunnery range. Uh, we get an overview of the battlefield from uh, what is known as the map board. Along the right side of the screen, we have a short and to-the-point briefing. In this case, it says the following. Gunnery range. Live firing exercise with static targets. Drive your vehicle or platoon around the road counterclockwise. Learn to use hills as hull-down firing positions. Also, practice firing on the move. So, hey, that's it. That's all. Let's get rolling. So if you press escape, this actually starts the mission. We then find ourselves looking again at the map board, but our interface is slightly different. Uh, there's a set of crosshairs on the screen that we control with either the keyboard or a joystick. Uh, this is our main tactical interface and the place where we can issue orders to our platoon. To a certain extent, you can actually play the entire game just from this view. So from the map board, you can issue orders to individual vehicles or to entire units. And this doesn't only apply to your own tank platoon. In many missions, you will be given command of other supporting units of vehicles, things like mechanized infantry, anti-aircraft guns, missile launchers, all kinds of crazy stuff. Depending on what unit type you have selected, you can do things like change that unit's facing, give them movement orders, have them open or cease fire, or uh, you know even shift into different formations. Now, by giving a single vehicle specific orders, you can detach it from the rest of its unit. Uh, this can be helpful for the purposes of recon or even drawing out uh, the enemy from a hardened position by, you know, kind of providing uh, some bait. Probably use your junior guys for that, right? <laughs> so when you order your units around, their specific behaviors are under the control of the game's AI. Now, the AI will act according to the skill level of the various crew members assigned to each vehicle. We'll get more into that in a little bit, but suffice it to say, having a more skilled crew will make them perform a little bit better under combat. So from this tactical view, you can also call in any available support from headquarters using what is known as the HQ radio net. Uh, support units generally come in two flavors, artillery and air. Artillery support allows you to call in artillery strikes on your map. Uh, you may have access to uh, certain different kinds of artillery, including uh, standard explosive or smoke mortars. Uh, the smoke mortars will provide kind of a smoke screen to shield your movements from the enemy. The explosive mortars will, of course, blow up. Uh, you all may also have access to more powerful and longer range field artillery, or at the top end, you might have access to uh, stronger, high explosive rocket attacks from those, uh, what is it, the, the MLRS deals, the multiple launch rocket systems, where basically you call for a rocket attack and it'll fire 20 rockets into, uh, into the side of a hill or whatever and, uh, you know, raise hell. 
On top of this, we also have air support. Unlike the rest of the units on the map, you do not control air support directly. You call it in, you point it somewhere, and then the pilot basically handles himself. Now, air support comes in two flavors on its own, scout and attack. So the small Kiowa scout helicopter will come onto the map and, uh, and kind of dart around. It'll hide behind hills and use terrain to kind of defend it. And uh, every once in a while, it'll pop out to see what there is to see. It's a great way to uncover hidden enemy positions, but uh, you do have to keep an eye on the map while the Kiowa is flying. Because basically, the game doesn't really model Fog of War like, say, Warcraft would by being black. You see the whole map, but uh, you will only see enemies if they're in anyone's sight lines. So, you know, if the Kiowa pops above a hill, sees an enemy, and then pops back down, it'll only be visible while it's above the hill. So don't waste your scout. If he's out there, keep an eye on that map. For attack, uh, we can call in the AH-64 Apaches. Uh, Apaches will perform rocket attacks on specific targets until they run out of ammo or are destroyed. Now, if any of your helicopters complete their mission and exit the map, they are available to call back in. If they get destroyed, well, unfortunately, there is not an endless supply of them. So that's the tactical control aspect of the game. Uh, for many war games, that's it. You control your units, you send them into battle, and hopefully you defeat your enemies. However, this is only half of M1 Tank Platoon. The bulk of your time will be spent in simulation mode, where you actually get down and dirty and take control of one or more of the positions in one or more of your own tanks. So as we just discussed, the M1 Abrams has a crew of four, a tank commander, a driver, a gunner, and a loader. Now, three of these positions are modeled in the game. The role of the loader is automated because, frankly, it probably isn't that much fun. <laughs> you can access these three positions from a series of four different views. Firstly, there is tank commander unbuttoned. Now, this represents the view of the tank commander with his hatch up. So if you look at the tank... You'll have the tank commander, you'll have your machine gun, and the hatch will be open, and the tank commander will be standing up outside of the tank. From here, you can get a great view of the battlefield, either with your naked eye or with a pair of seven-time zoom binoculars. This is very useful when you're trying to locate targets you may have seen on the map board and kind of figure out where they are directly in relation to you. The tank commander can also fire his 50 caliber machine gun from here. This view can be accessed by pressing F1 at any time. F2 switches us to the tank commander buttoned view. Now this means you've secured your hatch and you're safe inside the tank. From here, you can do pretty much everything you could do from the unbuttoned view, just with poor visibility and uh, no night vision aids, which you would have on the binoculars. F3 flips us away from the commander to the gunner station. Now the gunner, controls everything there is to do with the main gun and the 7.62mm coaxial gun. The gunner has the best magnification on his view in the tank. He can go up to 10 times zoom. He also has access to the laser rangefinder and the ballistic computer. Now, firing the rangefinder at a target locks range information along with information about wind speed and other environmental factors into the ballistics computer. The computer then automatically raises or depresses the main gun, that is, makes it go up or down, to achieve what it thinks is the optimal angle for a hit. As the gunner, though, you also retain the option of switching to what is known as battle sight view, which reverts full control of the turret to you. 
Now this comes in handy when vision is obscured by smoke or when targets get below the minimum range for the laser or if your computer is damaged, etc., etc. You can also manually enter ranges into the computer. Uh, gunnery presents quite a few challenges, especially when you or your target or both of you are all moving. The M1 is a highly advanced vehicle. It has a lot of systems aiding and maintaining the turret rotation on target, compensating for tank motion, all this stuff. However, much like in your car with you know traction control and anti-lock brakes and all this stuff, these systems are in no way perfect. It takes a good gunner to make every one of your 40 rounds count. Now, the computer doesn't do much for you when you switch to the machine gun. In that case, your best bet is to aim at the target with, uh, you have a reticle kind of in your view, and uh, your best bet there is to kind of walk your tracer rounds up towards it. So fire some tracer rounds, see where they land, adjust your sights, and just kind of move up until you actually hit something. Now, the fourth and final view is the view of the driver. Now, while the other three crew members live in the turret, the driver resides in the main hull of the tank. Uh, the driver looks through a periscope built into his hatch. This periscope always points to the front so that the driver can see where the front of the tank is facing. It's just like in your car. If you're driving, you generally look to the front. And frankly, if you're in a tank, you don't care if you hit somebody because you're in a tank. Uh, the, the controls in this view are fairly straightforward. Uh, pushing up moves the throttle forward. Down pulls it back, eventually putting the tank into a full stop and then into reverse. Left and right, turn the tank, left and right, and pressing enter centers your throttle, causing you to stop. Now, the controls in general do take some getting used to, especially if you are using the keyboard. I was sort of expecting the controls to be a bit more analog, but I think that's just something I've become used to kind of with analog controllers and modern games and whatever. Uh, these controls are more step-based. Now, for example, if you push the up arrow in the driver's view, the tank's throttle moves up one notch and stays there and kind of, you know, the tank starts moving forward at a slow speed. If you push the up arrow again, the throttle moves up another notch, increasing your speed. Pressing down notches it down, Pressing it left will, you know, start the tank turning left. Pressing it left again will start the tank turning left faster. I suspect the game controls in a more analog fashion with the joystick, but, uh, you know, with keyboard, at least for me, it took a little bit of getting used to. Now, this control scheme is reflected in all the other views and even on the map board. If you're in the turret, you know, pressing the left arrow will start the turret traversing to the left at a slow speed. Pressing it more will make it traverse faster. Uh, and on the map board where you would think you would probably be using a mouse, uh, you kind of have these, th these crosshairs. So you can move the crosshair up and you can move, there's basically two lines. There's like a, a left and right line and there's an up and down line. Move, you know, pushing the up arrow makes the up line move up. And again, it's the same as in the tank. Pushing it up starts it moving up. Pushing it up again starts it moving faster. I think there's like up to five steps of speed. The map board is where I got totally screwed up because uh, I don't know, for some reason my brain wanted the controls to work like if you pushed up it would start moving up and if you pushed up again it would stop moving but that's obviously not how it works whenever you switch into a position you basically take over from that crew member all positions have default behaviors for example the driver will always proceed in a straight line to whatever point he is ordered to drive to via the map board the gunner will track with the turret whichever target he deems to be the highest threat that's, you know, kind of within visual range. 
No matter which position you're occupying, though, you can still order the other crew around via the tank commander. So, for example, say you're manning the gunner station, but, you know, you need the tank to move up. Yep, you can, you know, you can do it the crappy way, which is to switch to the driver's view, push up a few times, get to where you want to go, stop, and then switch back to the gunner's view. But if you want to be a bit more streamlined about it, you can simply press A, which orders the driver to advance fast, and then you can press H to halt. Uh, you can tell you can press L or R to have the driver turn left or right. And uh, if you're not manning the gunner, you can press F to have him fire at will, which means he will fire at whichever target he's currently tracking. Uh, C to cease fire. There's quite a few ways to control your tank, and you can use almost all of them at once. It's actually quite cool and quite flexible, so you can really control all aspects of your tank, no matter which position you're actually occupying, by using these sort of tank commander controls. So you know, if you're acting as the driver, pressing A would basically make the tank commander, you know, tell the driver to move forward or if you're playing the gunner, etc. So it's quite cool. And as for your platoon, whichever tank you decide to occupy becomes the lead tank. Your other tanks will form on you in whichever formation they've been ordered into, which you can do again from either the map board or from the uh, tank commander controls. Now, aside from the different positions, you can switch into any of your tanks and also switch to a pretty good-looking 3D external view of your tank, which uh, both helps in getting the lay of the land and also is pretty cool-looking. A mission is over when all your forces are defeated, all the enemy are defeated, or you exit all of your tanks from the map. You can also exit one or more of your tanks from the map. As long as one's still around, you can still fight. At the end of the mission, though, your surviving crew receives promotions and commendations, which increases their skill level when, uh, you know, they're kind of left to their own devices. Much like in another Microprose game that I've covered, XCOM, having your troops survive and become highly skilled made the game easier and also became made the game kind of become much more involved. It made you care about your tank crew. They weren't just these computer people that didn't do anything. So as you progress through the campaign, you'll defend against Warsaw Pact forces and eventually, if all goes well, switch from defense to more of an offensive assault, rushing your forces east across the Rhine, capturing enemy positions and pushing the line of battle further east. So that's about it. There's simultaneously not much to this game, but also tons and tons and tons and tons of small details. I mean, there's stuff I haven't talked about in detail, like you can dismount infantry armed with anti-tank guns on some of your support units. Um, you know, how you approach the enemy has a huge effect on your effectiveness in combat. I mean, this is a very deep simulation that, much like other Microprose games, is simultaneously very complex, but also very approachable. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
So since we're back in 1989, we're rolling away from the Pentiums that we've been focusing on the past few episodes to run M1 Tank Platoon. I mean, we are really rolling away from the Pentiums here. To run M1 Tank Platoon, you basically needed nothing more than an IBM PC, XT, or AT with 512K of RAM and CGA, EGA, Hercules, Tandy, or VGA slash MCGA graphics. You know, in some ways, this stuff was damned impressive. I mean, go and ask a game developer today to make a game that is equally playable in, you know, two colors, four colors, 16 colors, or 256 colors. I mean, it's just freaking impressive. Now, from a sound perspective, you also had a ton of options. There was, of course, the venerable PC speaker. Uh, the game also, of course, supported the ad lib. Uh, Tandy Sound, and the MT-32. What you guys are hearing now was ripped right from my own MT-32. Usually I try and find a YouTube video because I'm lazy, but uh, I didn't find one I liked, so I just fired up the game and uh, pulled and recorded the sound right off my, my MT-32. I may throw the PC speaker version in here too, just to make your ears bleed a bit, but uh, we'll see how I feel in, in post. Fire! Much like other micropro sims of the day, the world was depicted by flat-colored 3D polygons with uh, flat bands of color representing roads and water and pyramids of kind of varying slopes representing hills. Now, unlike in flight sims, being on the ground meant that the terrain was actually important to the game. In fact, using hills to fire from uh, is what is known as a hull-down position, and this hull-down position was very important as a tactic in the game. Basically, you would climb a hill with your tank until only your turret peeks out over the hill crest, presenting a very small target. In fact, you know, hills weren't just big polygons. I mean, they were, but the crest of a hill was actually represented by a different colored line, so you knew where it was when you were climbing. The game controlled with the keyboard, as I mentioned, it also supported a joystick used in conjunction with the keyboard. Now, like I said, my suspicion is that some of the controls might even make a bit more sense using the joystick versus the arrow keys. Unfortunately, I didn't try it out to see. Now, the game's music and sound effects were created by, I guess you pronounce it because I'm, I speak French. I think if you're American, you'd say Ken Lagasse. I'd probably say Ken Lagasse but whatever. Anyways, Ken Lagasse, let's go with that, uh, graduated from the Hart College of Music in 1960. He then went on to join the Coast Guard and would go on to teach music for the next 20 years. Now, in 1986, Ken started working at Microprose, where he would combine his deep knowledge of music and composition with an interest in programming. His first game was 1986's Gunship, which was uh, another Microprose sim that simulated the AH-64 Apache. And, uh, you know, his career would then span over 20 games in less than 10 years for Microprose. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So Arnold Hendrick is the mind behind M1 Tank Platoon. Hendrick, even in his earliest days, was always a gamer. One example he provides in interview is back when he was in the fourth grade. He received a whole bunch of those small plastic army men and tanks and all that stuff. 
Now, unlike most kids who would simply while away the hours pretending to have little his little plastic troops blow the crap out of each other willy-nilly, Hendrix started writing up tables describing movement and damage points for each type of unit. He then got his younger brother and other neighborhood kids to play the game. However, and maybe this is, you know, a, a, a side effect of him being young, he never really communicated all the rules to the others. And since he wrote them, he used his greater knowledge of the game to win. Uh, eventually, the neighborhood kids got tired of losing, and he ended up playing alone. As he aged into his teenage years, he took a further interest in wargaming with, uh, you know, these classic Avalon Hill hex-based wargames. Uh, he credits this early exposure to gaming, tactics, and theaters of battle with sparking his interest in history in general and military history specifically. This led him to study history at Wesleyan University in Hartford, Connecticut, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts, I believe, again, in history. After school, he started working in the gaming industry. Now, we're not talking computer games here right off the bat. He began working on tabletop games. Now, I'm the first to say I don't know anything about tabletop games and i know even less about tabletop games from the early 80s so i'm not even really going to try here there's some mentions of a game called barbarian prince uh something called sword bearer and some uh warship games anyone who knows more about kind of that era of uh, of tabletop strategy gaming feel free to let me know he he was definitely very well known in in the board gaming industry uh he ran a company for a little while uh creating board games so uh yeah, you know, he wasn't just uh, he wasn't just a, a dude that came out of school and started typing on a computer. The important aspect for this story, you know, my my incredible lack of board gaming knowledge aside, is that in 1983 he moved over from paper to the digital world by getting a job as a game designer at Coleco. Now that job lasted for two years, and then Coleco went under, as you know, a lot of game developers tend to do. From there, he was hired on by Sid Meier at Microprose as the company's first non-programming game designer. So we got to keep this in mind. Arnold Hendrick is not a programmer. He doesn't have much programming experience. Actually, I don't know if he has any programming experience. He is a pure designer. Once on board at Microprose, his already long game design experience came in very handy, hitting the ground running, working on various simulations, including Gunship and the original Pirates, which I've previously discussed, uh, in addition to working on a few other games. Now, a tank simulator had been on the mind of the team at Microprose for a long time. It seemed like a very obvious thing for them to do. However, they knew that it would have to be in 3D, and they weren't quite sure that they could make that happen. Now, with the release of Gunship, in 1986, they came to the conclusion that their technology was up to snuff enough to start seriously thinking about their tank game. Now, obviously, you'd think an inspiration for almost any action-based tank game was, of course, Battlezone. And I'm not going to say that it wasn't. However, Hendrick did not want a mindless action shooter. Given his background and the reputation that Microprose had begun to foster for their simulations, their tank game would model tank combat as it really was. Tanks rolled around in platoons, with support, with combined arms, with tactics. It wasn't just a look out the window and shoot whatever shows up kind of situation. So from a realism standpoint, they had to choose an interesting theater. And that is why they went with Central Europe. Now at the time, 
1989, or, you know, actually I think we're now in like 1986, it was very unlikely. It was considered highly unlikely that the Abrams tanks would be deployed into the Middle East because frankly, they were too heavy to uh, lift by air. And so they'd have to be sent over by ship. By the time they got anywhere, the battle would probably be over. On top of this, the only other political power that could reasonably put up competitive opposition to the Abrams at the time were the Warsaw Pact nations. So that's why they kind of went with that whole area. Now, programming on the game began in November of 1987 by programmer Scott Spanberg. Uh, The basic game engine was under development for almost a year just by itself. Now, one of the biggest challenges was designing a scrolling terrain system that could run on anything from an 8088 IBM PC all the way up to cutting-edge 386s of the time. Much of the physics of the game was modeled uh, in an accurate way as well. I mean, tanks had momentum. They didn't just stop on a dime. Shells arced on ballistic trajectories. A lot of attention was paid to the small details, and that came across very much once the game released. Hendrick took his deep background in military history and wargaming, and he used it to bring this world to life. Now, what that means is that, you know, as game designers do tend to do, he aimed for the stars here. He initially envisioned a huge sprawling battlefield with a multitude of units, you know, things that we are only really starting to do today. It was quickly realized that battles of that scale would choke all but the most powerful machines of the time and frankly probably wouldn't even work on those. The goal of playing on any and all IBM-compatible machines meant that engagements did have to be small. We're talking a single American platoon versus a small number of Warsaw Pact units. That was kind of the best that that they could do. Now, this historical research that, uh, that Hendrik took part in was a part and parcel of the battle generation system, which took another six months to develop. Now, this system would generate a huge number of random battle maps, creating almost infinite replayability. I think... Uh, an interview Hendrick, or maybe it was the developer, said that uh, if you played the game every day, it would take you 75 years to run into a duplicate map. And now to get real information, because this is a simulation, you want stuff to be real, Hendrick requested as much publicly available information uh, from the U.S. Army as he could via the Freedom of Information Act. They provided some, some they didn't, Uh, You know, things like uh, specific weapon performance information and stuff like that had to be gleaned from other sources, even though technically I think the military was required to provide it. Uh, Active and retired tank officers were also interviewed with regard to how tanks operated in real combat situations. Uh, The team really did also want access inside a real M1 Abrams tank but the army wouldn't allow it. These were kind of new cutting edge weapons at the time. And uh, the army said that for security reasons, for secrecy, for national security, all that noise, they couldn't just let people wander around inside the tanks. So instead they got a modeler's book, which had detailed interior shots of each position and built the game off of those. Though I'm not sure how the modeler, maybe he's a former tanker or something. Cause uh, you know, if they didn't, maybe they didn't want it in a video game. Who the hell knows? It's the army. Now, All this realism was all well and good, but of course, you know, this is a video game. It's supposed to be fun. So some aspects aspects of the game did need to be simplified from real life, especially when it came to very niggly details about gunnery. 
But, uh, you know, that decision was made consciously by the team due both to the limitations of the technology they were building on and also, again, for the fun of the simulation. Uh, the game also came with a 200-plus page manual brimming with information written by Hendrick himself. So with over three years of planning and work behind it, M1 Tank Platoon released in 1989 to great reviews and sold over 500,000 copies, which for 1989 was an incredible amount. Uh, it was hailed as the best armor simulator available. Uh, you know, tankers in the military were saying how realistic it was. Uh, you know, it was just reviewed very, very well. Now, with that, you'd think a sequel would have been forthcoming, but, well, it wasn't. Well, other tank games, uh, even other tank games based on the Abrams were released over the years, it took Microprose almost 10 years to come out with M1 Tank Platoon 2 in 1998. Being almost 10 years more modern, uh, the second game is obviously very graphically superior, supporting 3DFX Glide, uh, 3D Acceleration, and the ability to play as either uh, a U.S. Army Armored Regiment, Cavalry, or Marine Unit. Uh, the tanks and terrain look amazing in this game. Uh, M1 Tank Platoon 2 offers five campaigns, including the Gulf War, a North African campaign, and conflicts in Eastern Russia, Moldova, and Poland. Now, Tank Platoon 2 does recapture the gameplay of the original, but misses a few features like some of the external views and the Tank Commander unbuttoned view, which uh, was frankly very helpful in the first game to give you a good overview of the battlefield via the uh, binoculars. Much like the original, uh, M1 Tank Platoon 2 came with a massive 263-page manual. Unfortunately, on release, the manual had quite a few errors in it, as did the game. A patch and errata were soon released, but the second game in the series, while still a good tactical tank simulation, didn't do nearly as well as the original, unfortunately. Now, moving on from here, uh, the original intention for the series was to have additional games come out kind of in the tank platoon universe. Uh, in the pre-release marketing for M1 Tank Platoon 2, it was stated that games modeling other aspects of, co of combat, such as uh, artillery and helicopter piloting, would be created, leading to a full, integrated, virtual battleground series, all based on a, a common engine and all talking to each other. Now, work was started 
on a new Gunship game, which I believe may have been Gunship 2000, but uh, I'm not 100% sure. And uh, obviously this game was a a sequel to Gunship, which models the AH-64 Apache attack helicopter. One of the promised features for that game was a multiplayer link to M1 Tank Platoon. Now, eventually, it was revealed that this hookup will be would be not to M1 Tank Platoon 2, but to a new game, M1 Tank Platoon 3. Quite a bit of development time went into uh, this next Tank Platoon game, to the point of even apparently having a testable product. However, relatively poor sales of Gunship, plus, I believe, the sale of Microprose 2, I can't quite, Hasbro, I believe, uh, led to the cancellation of M1 Tank Platoon 3. Uh, as of 2009, the rights to the series rest with Interplay, and as far as I can tell, nothing is being done with them thus far. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So, where can we get our hands on M1 Tank Platoon today? Well, this one isn't readily available as of yet. You can certainly find the original discs on eBay, and of course, a quick Google will net you some results of uh, a dubious nature. Now, I'm not sure if this is a rights situation or not, since uh, there certainly are other MicroPro sims available on GOG. I know you can get F-117A Stealth Fighter and Silent Service there, so hopefully M1 will also be made available. I know Interplay and GOG do have a good relationship in general, so yeah, who knows, hopefully. Now, if you do somehow get your hands on this game, it does run well in DOSBox. There's only a few small gotchas because there isn't like a fancy GOG installer that does everything right. There's a few settings you do have to change. Firstly, if you get your hands on the installed disks or images of the installed disks, the game is hard-coded to install only from the A or B drive. So initially, you'll have to map a floppy drive and point it to the folder that has the install files in it. That's not a big deal. It works pretty well. Secondly... With the kind of regular DOS box settings, uh, the game will basically just crash on startup. To resolve this, the only thing you have to do is change the CTU, CPU type from auto to 386 underscore prefetch. Now with those small tweaks, the game runs great. Yo, blockers. This is Amiru Nakago, and you're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. Keep being awesome, and remember, you crack me up, little buddy. So, big question of the day, does M1 Tank Platoon hold up today? Well, when we start rolling back into the late 80s, I'm always a bit wary to jump up right away and say yes, because, you know, it's old, there's graphical things, and crappy sound, blah, 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 but in this case, I'm going to do it. This is a great game. Sure, the graphics are somewhat dated, the colors are flat, but you know what? After your first training run, it doesn't matter. You figure out what everything looks like really quickly. The map board interface works quite well to order your various assets around. Jumping between positions is smooth and quick. The gameplay just sort of flows along. I felt like I spent the bulk of my time switching between the map board and the gunner position, unless I really wanted to tweak my position on a hill or do some fancy maneuvering from the driver's point of view. But, you know, like like many other MicroPro sims, this game goes a very long way toward teaching us lay people what it's like to ride a tank into combat. The manual by itself is a great resource covering not only gameplay, but real world tactics and strategies, technical information about NATO and Warsaw Pact vehicles, and much more. You know, long gone are the days of 200 plus page game manuals, and I really miss it. This one is up there with the best of them. Now, this isn't to say 
that the game is without problems. I mentioned it a bit, but the controls on the map board are somewhat clunky, especially the crosshair that you use to select items on the map. A lot of times I found myself sending tanks somewhere I didn't want to because I was trying to click on a thing, and if you click on bare ground, your tanks are just going to go to it. In addition, you know, there's a ton of keyboard commands. Now, a keyboard overlay that comes with the game is helpful. I had a list of keyboard commands that I found on a wiki, but I absolutely spent a ton of time hunting for the right key to press to do exactly what I wanted because, frankly, the keyboard commands are not obvious. They did a good job mapping fairly complex controls to the keyboard, but, I mean, there's just so many of them, it's really hard to remember what does what. As for the second game in the series, it's also worth a play. It's much, much better looking, and it retains most of the features from the first game in kind of a more modern shell. M1 Tank Platoon 2 also has a mod community around it with full mission and asset editors, so, you know, it is a great platform for some creativity as well. Okay, that's that. But before we close out, I want to talk about the giveaway for July. My good buddy, Ben Chandler, uh, gave me a code to uh, his new game that he worked on called Techno Babylon. And uh, it's a really, really cool adventure. I have it. I haven't played through it uh, very much as of yet, but uh, everything I hear about it and uh, you know everything I know about it lead me to believe it's a very, very cool, more modern kind of uh, retro style adventure game. So... If you guys want to win a free copy of Techno Babylon from Wajedi Games, then uh, you know just drop me an email to podcast at umbcast.com with the subject line Techno Babylon giveaway, and I will pick a winner for that in the next few weeks. Thank you again very much, Ben. So that's it. That is that for another show. Thanks to everyone for listening and participating like you do. I love it. Next time. I'm going to cover a game that I, or at least a genre, that I tend to shy away from on this show, RPGs. I'm going to hit up Baldur's Gate. I'm going to be away for work, as I said, in the next three weeks, so that's going to give me some good opportunity to play a little bit each night and really immerse myself back into the uh, the world of Baldur's Gate and hopefully some Baldur's Gate 2, too. Uh, you know, frankly, the time commitment is the main reason I don't cover too many RPGs. They take a real long time to play, and I only give myself two or three weeks between shows. So uh, thank my company for sending me away and giving me evenings alone in a hotel room. As always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer, who I will soon know in person for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. And don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can toss a few bucks my way over at patreon.com slash umbcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash umbcast. If you find some value from the show, please consider joining my illustrious group of 39 current patrons to help me with costs and to hit the next goal of weekly Let's Plays. I really want to start doing some more video content. Like I said, it scares the crap out of me. So, uh... (laughs) I, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to force myself to do it by making it a goal. Uh, I also mentioned on Twitter and I believe on Facebook that, uh, we'll be doing the next patron hangout soon. So keep an eye on dates for that. It's probably going to be once I'm back home, but yeah, we'll see. Check out the show notes for this show and other episodes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. 
Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash UMB show. Me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash UMB cast, where I promise I'm going to put up some more stuff soon. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Send me some reviews. I really want some. And that is that. And we will see you next time for Baldur's Gate here in the upper memory block. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.